0: Morning, everyone. So I have a little note here reminding me that we have meet the team after the service because every time we have one, I totally forget. So I need your help. The note is right here. If I do not reference meet the team at the end of the service, say, Tim, you missed something, and I'll probably still not know what you're talking about. Just yell out, meet the team, and hopefully I'll remember that. But I mean, I actually have a note set there. Uh, many years ago uh, in Cincinnati when I was a pastor there we had uh, an individual come and he was touring the country visiting churches and blogging about his experiences in different churches he was not a believer uh, but he was just kind of for an entire year going to uh, 52 different churches and ended up at the church that I was at and uh, his review online of our church Um, was very positive in in most respects, except he had one real negative comment. He said, that church prays way too much. We must have prayed like five times. And I mean, none of the prayers were like super long prayers. They were just kind of, you know, thank you, Lord, for the gifts and tithes and offerings. You know, be with us as we look at God's word. I mean, they were all non-sleeping prayers. I mean, you could stay awake during every one of them, but he complained that we prayed way too much. And I don't know, I thought that was kind of awesome, <laughs> pretty awesome. So we're going to start, even though we've already prayed twice today, wow, I'm going to pray right now because uh, those tragic events that took place in Kentucky in particular is devastating. I don't know any families there, but I know that there are hundreds of families that are affected by it. and. Um, I just want to pray God's peace and comfort and protection upon the people who are survivors. So let's, let's bow our heads, take a moment, and pray. Our gracious Father, in times of ease, it is super easy to shout praises to your name. But in times of tragedy, it's hard. It's hard to praise you It's hard to acknowledge your sovereignty and your goodness. It's hard to acknowledge your mercy and your tenderness. But, Father, we acknowledge that today. We stand firmly upon the fact that you are a God of goodness, a God of patience, a God of great kindness. And we would ask, as your people, to show all of those affected by the tornadoes this past week that you are a good God, that you are loving, that you are tender, that you build up those who are weak and you comfort those who are mourning. I ask for your goodness to be on full display, that they may not lose heart, that they may not give in to anger and fear, but that they would bow their knees. you, the God of all creation, make your name great among them, that they too may all see that your loving kindness extends to them every single morning. In Jesus' name, God's people said, Amen. amen. So, we're on to the book of Hebrews, and if you listened to any of the three songs this morning, we sang three Christmas carols, you will find a beautiful, consistent theme with what we're talking about this morning in Hebrews chapter 10, or, whew, wow, we're not that far along, Hebrews chapter 2, verse 10, and this entire section to the end of, the book of, the end of chapter 2, I believe can be summarized in this sentence that you see on the screen. We're going to see something incredibly wonderful today. By coming as a man to lost mankind, the Lord of glory has delivered his people from Satan, from death, from fear, from bondage, from sin and temptation. And in doing so, he brings. This is a marvelous and magnificent thought. That should not just simply be reserved for Christmas time, but should be reserved for every day. Every day that we are given an opportunity to live this life that he's given us, our day should be marked and just noticed that we live in this work that Christ has done on our behalf. And it is marvelous work. It is work that no one else could accomplish, and we've seen so far that even mighty spiritual beings like the angels have no possibility of living this way and guaranteeing our salvation, let alone ourselves. And so we're going to start right away in chapter 2, verse 10, and look at how the Lord of glory is on full display to us. Now, in the rest of this Chapter He's going to be quoting a lot from Psalm 22. We're not going to go back to that Psalm, but that's the Psalm that starts out My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And where are those words recited in the New Testament? Not at the birth of Christ, but at his death on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the entire chapter, Psalm 22, is talking about the work of the Messiah, his work as conquering king over death. Satan, bondage, sin, temptation, all of those things including fear and uncertainty. And it starts out in verse 10 of Hebrews chapter 2 saying, For it was fitting that he, who through whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Now there's a couple phrases in there, and and your New Testament English translation will have some commas there to help us break up those little sections, but if we read the verse without all those little extra qualifiers, the verse reads like this, For it was fitting that he should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. Very few times in human history is the suffering of an individual considered victorious usually someone who is victorious does what they win and sometimes they win by a slim margin that david versus goliath or sometimes they win by huge blowouts but we usually recognize the victor of someone someone to be celebrated as someone who wins triumphantly who's the last person standing who was the fastest who hit it the furthest who did the best But Christ looks at his work as Savior, realizing that true victory for him and for his people is not seen in being the fastest, being the best, being the strongest, being the quickest, hitting it the longest, hardest, fastest. It's suffering. Suffering. You see, Christ came in Isaiah 53 as the suffering servant Not as a triumphant king to begin with, but as the suffering servant, the one who was destined to suffer. Now you may think, oh, Tim, my life is just full of suffering. I know exactly what you're talking about. It almost feels like I was made to suffer. Don't for one second, for one second, think that what you experience in the pains of this life is anywhere near the suffering that Jesus Christ endured from the moment he was conceived. You see, the moment he was conceived as divine God and as human, he left his holy throne room for the very first time to be fully man and fully God. I cannot imagine what that transition must have been like. Existing outside of all time and space, existing with all perfect knowledge and wisdom, and now by himself deciding, I'm going to put those things aside and be bound to human flesh. Not to mention, eventually ending in his beating, wickedly being beaten, being shamed (laughs) then everyone leaves him he's all alone and he cries out on that cross my God my God why have you forsaken me and then just to make the suffering worse he died not just for you but he died for the sins of the world. Imagine the weight of that anguish and suffering. And he came to do that. And the verse says, it was fitting for him, who is the founder of the salvation, to be made perfect through suffering. You see, his suffering accomplished something. It did not help his character. He did not need help with his character because sometimes we look at the suffering we go through and we kind of go, you know what, that's just going to make me a better person. That's just going to make me stronger in the end. You see, he wasn't suffering because he needed to work on his character. He did not need to work on patience. He did not need to work on loving others in the face of ridicule. He did not need to work on dealing with loneliness and depression. He did not need to work on anger and vindictiveness. We do. He didn't. But in that suffering, we are made perfect. We are made more right before God. As we love him, as we have faith in him, as we are one of his children, definitely that is a requirement. We need to be one of his children for that benefit to be ours. But through his suffering, which the world would look at and say, how tragic that is, how wrong that is. He wasn't really that strong in the end. He died. He couldn't even overcome that. How can he overcome my sin? But you see, things were working behind the scenes from eternity past, that this person, Jesus Christ, fully man and fully God, would accomplish something incredibly great through suffering. Now, we've looked so many times in messages over the past several years why the suffering was necessary. He needed to die on our behalf, and a real, true, physical death. He no longer had life in his breath. When he died and gave up his spirit, he was dead, truly dead, because that is what sin's justice demands, death. And he did that, not for himself, but for us. That we might be brought to glory in bringing many sons to glory. That's us, that's who he's talking about, to bring us to glory. If you're one of his children, you're one of his sons, daughters, you're one of his. And so this work on his behalf is yours. It's 100% yours. And I know you may not see the fact that you are perfect yet, but in God's eyes, you are glorious and you are righteous. You are justified, just as if you had never sinned. And it was all accomplished by the suffering of Christ. Verse 11 kind of is one of those thought verses. Let me read it. It says, For he who sanctifies us, which is God, Jesus Christ, and those who are sanctified all have one source, that is the Father. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. You know, Jesus considers you, as one of his children, family. How can God consider humanity, which he created, family? Inviting them into his inner circle of not friends, but family. Remarkable. The work that this God has done on our behalf through Jesus Christ is nothing less than absolutely remarkable. I have no other words to express how glorious and grand an action and fact can be, but that he has made you his family member. And that is what shocked the disciples at the time when Jesus says, when you pray to God, start out by saying, our Father, Our Father. Intimate relationships. And because of that intimate relationship and because of that fact, Jesus says, I'm not ashamed of you. I will stand and call you in the assembly of the great assembly in Psalm 40. In the great assembly, I will declare with my brothers and sisters your name. Have you ever done something to embarrass your parents? Be honest. Yes, I'll answer that for you, yes. Have you ever done something to embarrass your children? If you're a parent, oh yeah. You know what my favorite thing is to embarrass my kids? You ever go up to a fast food counter and uh, take an order and they ask what your name is? I just say any name that comes to my mind. I rarely say Tim. I go by James, sometimes Paul. Um, I I just kind of make it up as I go. What's really weird is sometimes I do that when I'm by myself. My kids aren't even there to get embarrassed. But there's that immediate, just like you're doing right now, that little smile of, oh, why? Why do that, Dad? Why? Tim, why are you doing that? All that funness aside... From my perspective, I know that it can be somewhat embarrassing to be with me when I'm ordering fast food. I get it, but on a serious note, I know that there's things that we've done that if it was exposed to the people around us, we would feel humiliated, right, by the sin that we keep hidden, God knows that sin. He knows crystal clearly your heart. And he is not embarrassed calling you his child. He's not ashamed that you bear his family name. He loves you and upholds you and comes to your side every time the enemy says, you're not good enough, you're not worthy, you failed again. He can't love someone like you. You're dirt, you're scum, you're worthless. He never, never attacks us like that. Never. He comforts us. He holds us. He ministers to us. He gives us more and more grace and mercy in those moments. And he quiets and silences that voice of Satan that says, You're not good enough. Because in Christ, you are not just good enough, you are perfectly holy in His sight through His work. I'm not ashamed of you. In verse 12 and 13, we see the application of Psalm 22 in this text by talking about our unity with Christ. So we've seen, first of all, that he's the Lord of glory, that suffering was necessary. We've seen also that he's not ashamed to have a relationship with us. And thirdly here, we see that there is a unity here that is incredibly well-grounded unity. So he's not ashamed to call us brothers to have a family relationship with us, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praises. This is God speaking of Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ doing the action. So Jesus Christ in the assembly to the brothers and sisters, us, he's never afraid to declare God's goodness and greatness among us. He's not going to hide the good favor of God in any way. He fully reveals to us all of his glory, all of his majesty, all of his might. And in fact, he is so clear in doing that, he has said many times, if you want to see the Father, you see me. If you see me, you see the Father. The Father and I are one. He constantly had that as a refrain in the New Testament. How do we know what God is like? Look at Jesus. How do we know what Jesus is like? Look at the Father. The two are one. There is this strong unity, not just among the Godhead, but among us. As a new family member, we are included in that praise and glory of shouting and telling others the name of God, of all that he's done, that he will sing his praises in our midst. You see, singing is not just that first episode that we have in a worship service that is somewhat optional. Oh, you know, it's somewhat, I, you know, I get there, I get there, whatever. I've really got to get there for the message. No, 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 no. All of it is necessary because Christ starts out in our relationship saying, I'm going to sing of the praises of my God in your midst, in your assembly. He says in verse 13, and again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children of God, behold, I and the children of God, he has given me. There is a unity in this relationship that we have with Jesus Christ. And we talk about that unity so often. We talk about that that, that fellowship so often that it, it can really become unimpressive pain and a matter of fact fellowship unity this relationship we have with jesus christ and with the father it can become so mundane and so familiar that we lose the impact of it and i think one of the ways that we can gain a healthy impact of it is to ask ourselves what would happen if we do not have that unity What if that unity and that fellowship with the Father and the Son were not there? Well, if it was not there, none of us would want to come to church, first and foremost. None of us would want to sing praises. None of us would think, let's pray. None of us would think, let's give to support the Lord's ministry. None of us would think, how do I love that person? None of us would think, how do I forgive? None of us would think, do I need patience? None of us would think, oh, I've got a problem with anger. None of us would think for one second that temptation and falling to it was wrong. You see, unity with God, unity with Jesus Christ, Him accepting us into His family and us being part of that family, adopted as sons and daughters in His kingdom, has immediate ramifications to how we look at all of life. If we did not have unity with the Son then you would still be dead in your sins. You still would be under the pain and penalty of judgment, of God's wrath. Not pleasant things to think about. But Him says, I could not imagine getting through troubles and trials in life without being able to text someone, pray for me, help me. I need love. I need forgiveness. I couldn't imagine trying to get through life on your own. And so unity in Christ gives us, just as people in a congregation, a connection that allows us to rely on one another And when one person is down, another person may be up. When one is suffering, one might be encouraging. And that diversity is so right and necessary that without it, I've seen people live without it. I've seen people die without unity, without fellowship, without a connection to God and to others. And sad doesn't even begin to bring justice to that type of life. I don't want you to live in that kind of life. I don't want you to have that kind of sadness, that disconnection. But more importantly, I don't want you to have a disconnection with a fellowship and relationship with God himself. He continues in verse 14 and 15. Oh, absolutely marvelous words. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood. A concluding statement here. Since the children share in flesh and blood, that is, we're all human here, right? We all have flesh and blood, we're all human. That's Scripture's way of talking about our humanness, sometimes our frailty. But in this sense, a unity among ourselves and with Christ He himself, that is Jesus Christ, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has a power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Those two verses are a summary of what Christmas is. Did you get that? That is a summary of Christmas right then and there. Since, therefore, the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is, he became man. He became real human. Now, to us, that's not a big deal. We're human. We, you know, that, That's all, all the existence we know. But for him, that was radical change from being fully God and now he is fully God and fully man. Tim, you just mentioned... Uh... Pretty politically charged word there. Did you really mean to say slavery? Really, Tim? What do you know about slavery, Tim? Same thing you know about slavery. That before Christ or with... Who had power over you. Who was your master. It may sound really silly to say... But it was Satan. Oh, I know you're going to say, but Tim, you mean to tell me that there was a time in your life where you were one of those Satan worshipers and you were going around sacrificing goats and you know doing all that stuff in black robes and doing chants and lighting candles and and skulls all over? No, no, no. (laughs) No, Satan is incredibly subtle as a master. Subtle. He'll say things like, you should hate that person. Okay, I'll hate them. They'll say things like, you should fantasize about getting even with them. Oh, I could do that. I'll never act on it, but you're, oh yeah, that satisfies me. You should disobey. You should dishonor. You should steal. Everybody does it. You should lust. Everybody does it. It doesn't hurt anybody. And all of that sin, Satan has mastery control over in a person who does not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. And so Jesus, in order to rescue his people, in order to be Jesus who saves, he needed to become like us, human flesh, suffer and die, and defeat our master, the one who had power over us. And he tells us in super explicit detail He himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death, suffering, he might destroy the one who has power over death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through the fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. How do we know he actually did this? How do we know he actually won? How do we know he won? How do we know that we can be free from the power of sin? How do we know that we don't have to follow the master of this world? How do we know that actually happened, that he won? Oh, it's not complicated. And I think you know the answer. Where is he buried right now? Where is he buried? Where is death consuming him and his body decaying? Where is that taking place? It's not, is it? It's because he rose again. You see, the message of Christ is not just a message of Christmas and not just a message of Easter. It is everything. You can't talk about one slice of him without talking about the other parts of him because he is one whole bringing us victory. It's not just a slice of him that we need to think about and respect and honor and say,